In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we are going to talk about Trump having COVID-19, which <laughs> there's a lot to say there. I, You know, last week when we felt like the world had turned upside down after the debate, God, we had no idea what we were in for, were we? <laughs> it was just the beginning. I feel like that yeah, keeps happening. And, and then after that, we're going to do another uh, injustice system update or uh, uh, segment in which we will talk about the process of grand juries. And then finally, we are going to end by having a more philosophical discussion about the role of teachers and their politics in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So some interesting subjects to be had. Yes, but to get started, we will, of course, do an update on the COVID numbers. So, worldwide, there are now a total of 36.3 million people have been infected, up from 33.8 last week, which is 7.4% increase. At this point, 1.06 million people have died, up from 1 million last week, which is about a 6% increase. Currently, there are 7.9 million people sick with this disease, So 7.9 million active cases up from 7.7 last week, so a 2.6% increase. And at this point, 75% of all COVID patients have recovered, 3% have died, and 22% are still sick. And in the U.S., we've got 7.8 million people who have contracted the disease up from 7.4 million last week, which is a 5.4% increase, so again, slower than the world overall. Uh, We have 216,000 people who have died, which is 5,000 more people that have died since you heard from us last time, or I guess last week. And currently we've got 2.6 million people who are still sick, um, which is an increase of about 19,000 active cases from last week. So the blip of our case growth going negative was so far just a blip. Mm. And at this point, 64% of all U.S. COVID cases have recovered and 2.8% have died and 34% are still sick. So what I'm hearing is that we're totally out of the woods at this point. Yeah, we're totally out of the woods. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty much done. Yeah. Yeah. And God. adding to that, those numbers of, uh, of sick people <laughs> are one very esteemed group of folks from the White House. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of caveats that we need to make before mm-hmm. we start talking about this. Um, and, and I will say this caveat, the, Trump has not been making it easy for me this week <laughs> because I, I really am trying not to be a bad person. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying not to be a spiteful person because I believe that nobody should have to, uh, suffer from medical conditions that people deserve to get the care they need. Sometimes people might make mistakes and they shouldn't necessarily have, uh, they shouldn't necessarily have that come back on them in a way that destroys their life or, or even ends their life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, 
so I've been really trying to maintain an attitude of like positive karma, liberal benevolence, beneficence, liberal, I guess yeah. you should say. <laughs> um, where I've been, I've been trying to think, okay, well, we want him to get better and we shouldn't, you know, we can acknowledge the fact that it is pretty much entirely his fault that he, he got it. Uh, we can entire, we can acknowledge the fact that he's not a good person. We can acknowledge the fact that hundreds of thousands of people have died because of his horrifically incompetent administration while also saying that we hope that he gets better. We mm -hmm. hope that he doesn't, uh, that uh, he, this disease doesn't take a turn for the worst for him. But I gotta say, he's not been making that easy for me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I'm in the same boat. I like, I generally speaking, um, don't think it's okay to wish death on people. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's pretty much just like a not cool thing. Um, yeah. But uh, sometimes you wish it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I, I see what you mean. I, I get what you mean. But but again, this this kind of gets back to the fact that, you know, we, we, a point that Michael and I have made on the pod at several points, which is that the the policies that Michael and I advocate for, you know, like Medicare for all, mm -hmm. free college tuition, that is for all. Yeah. Like, we don't believe in Medicare for Democrats mm -hmm. or Medicare for liberals or Medicare for, for progressives. We believe in Medicare for all. Or even and Medicare for all non-Nazis, all non-white supremacists. <laughs> nope, yeah, yeah, they get screw it, too. it. You know, <laughs> Medicare for even the Nazis, yeah. even the Nazis. They deserve it, too. I mean, okay, maybe they don't maybe deserve, they don't deserve it. it. <laughs> it's hard to exclude <laughs> them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard exactly. to implement that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but actually, I, I, but I, I would even say that we're not even necessarily saying that we're advocating for Medicare for all because every single individual person deserves it. Yeah. But it is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like, we advocate for that because it's the right thing to do. We want Donald Trump to get the, the medical care that he needs because that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And well, judging by what took place... I don't think we have anything to worry about in that yeah, well, regard. That's the, that's the other side of this story, which is the fact that he has been given top quality health care mm -hmm. with a team of doctors using yeah. experimental drugs that he is one of the only people in the world that has access to it, and they're treating him free at the point of service. Yeah. Hmm. So, huh, that sounds an awful lot like socialized medicine, doesn't it, Michael? Yeah, but again, it's it's socialization or um, you know socialism for the rich, Nathan. We want yeah. them to get the best. Um, <laughs> but but to put all of this kind of in um, perspective, I did want to just kind of walk through the facts because the Trump yeah. administration has been obfuscating to like a maddening degree. So I kind of want yeah. to just kind of go through a bit of a timeline, kind of what we know, what happened when. Yeah. Um, so to start off, it's actually a couple days before um, Trump announced that he was COVID positive. So on September 26th, there was a large event in the Rose Garden at the White House to commemorate the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Um, at this event was President Melania and a bunch of other Republican leaders. They did not require masks. Everybody was packed in really closely. And although the event was outside, um, all the chairs were really close together and... You know, there was no social distancing whatsoever. 
and a lot of people can be seen hugging each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is another one of those points where I'm really trying not to be a crappy person mm-hmm. because this super spreader event, which has already infected, I, I don't even know what the count is at this point. Like it's at least eighteen a, people just in like yeah in yeah over over a dozen like over like like a dozen and a half people. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an event in which they were trying to rush the filling of a dead woman's. Uh, Supreme Court seat less than two months before an election after they had already stolen a seat using that same argument of, oh, we're in an election year (laughs) in order to do it. So this group of hypocrites, this group of non-principled hypocrites go to this event that becomes a super spreader event Mm -hmm. and a bunch of them end up getting COVID. Yeah. Again, I'm really trying hard not to take pleasure in that. <laughs> it's admirable of you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. But we can always we can always take solace in the fact that we want these people not to be infected with this disease because we don't want other people to be infected with this that disease. That is that is also a very good point. Yeah. yeah. So like so Tuesday, which was, you know, three days after this event, that's when Trump was um, in the first presidential debate. And then on Wednesday, September thirtieth, Trump held a rally and a fundraiser. And then on the afternoon of Thursday, October 1st, Hope Hicks, who is one of Trump's top aides, tested positive. And later that day, Trump uh, tested and came back positive that evening. And at 1 a.m. on Friday morning, October 2nd, he tweeted that he and Melania are, had both tested positive for the disease. Yeah. And by later Friday morning, he had symptoms and his blood oxygen levels had dropped b- below 94% and he was put on oxygen at the White House for about an hour. By Friday night, uh, Trump started to be put on experimental pharmaceuticals and was brought to Walter Reed Hospital um, to be you know, treated for a potentially severe case of the disease. And by Friday night, we also found out that Mike Lee and Tom Tillis, both senators on the uh, Judiciary Committee, um, both tested positive, and Kellyanne Conway and um, Bill Stipen, uh, Trump's campaign manager, also tested positive. Yeah. So then on Saturday, things start getting even more questionable. <laughs> yeah. So Trump's uh, doctor at the White House holds a press conference talking about Trump's condition, and he refers to Trump being 72 hours into the disease, which actually puts Trump's diagnosis not on, on um, Thursday evening, like when he tweeted and notified people and stopped interacting with people heavily, and, and dials that clock back to actual Wednesday evening when um, he may have known that he had the disease, although that's not clear. Yeah. Well, they, they released a statement basically saying that what the doctor meant to say was that it was the third day of the disease because mm-hmm. you know he, he got the diagnosis uh thursday night and then there was friday and then there's saturday so that would make it the third day yep that's what they argued but again who knows with these people they lie about everything yeah and we do know that um, even if that was true, like even if he didn't he truly didn't know he tested positive until Thursday evening, we know that after Hope Hicks's diagnosis, with whom he'd had close contact with, um, he proceeded to go to a fundraising event with around 200 donors 
and including yeah. meeting with 19 key donors for about 45 minutes inside without masks. So he knows that he's been in close personal contact with a an infected, a COVID-positive person and fails to take even, even minimal precautions. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Then, throughout Saturday and Sunday, he continues to receive experimental treatment. Then Chris Christie tests positive. On Monday, Kaylee McEnany tests positive. And, um, and even though she knew that she had had close contact with Trump and other infected individuals, she continued to speak without a mask in front of reporters. And now a number of White House reporters have also tested positive for the disease. Then... Trump takes a joyride around Walter Reed Hospital uh, in the Beast, which is, you know, the presidential limo, um, and tweets out, quote, feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. And then okay, on that part, that part. Hold on. Hold on. I got to I got to yeah. talk about that part. Um. You have access to the best medical treatment mm-hmm. because you're the goddamn president. Sure. Which we want, so, yes, right? Like, we want the ex- president to have really good doctors. Yeah, but we want everybody to. Mm-hmm. Like, God, you're... <laughs> this is like... I, I, I mean, this is like the the... You know, the cartoon moment where the rich person says, you know, oh, tell me about it. I know how it struggles. Like when I tell my maid to make my breakfast and she's two minutes late. I mean, you know, come on. This working man knows what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, you dumbass. (laughs) Yeah. You dumbass. We don't have access to the best drugs for everybody because this is America and we have a capitalistic healthcare system. Mm Mm-hmm. You have access to some of the best medical treatment on earth because you're the president. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I know what it's like to to be starving. Those cans of caviar are just so small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like can it's, never get enough pistachios. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, he's continuing on with the exact behavior and messaging that has led to such a crappy response. It's like he literally yeah. got slapped in the face with how crappy he has been about this disease and didn't learn his lesson. It's, you know, it, it, as soon as he gets back to the White House, which is still full of staffers and people that are like helping to administer the government, he t- whips off his mask. Yeah. And and they like do this weird photo op shot of him walking up the stairs to the White House looking all, like, epic and strong. Mm-hmm. And then they decided to reshoot it so that they could make a propaganda video. Um, and during the reshoot, apparently, he wasn't wearing a mask, reportedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he releases this video where he basically repeats the whole, you know, you can't be afraid of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically, the message that is trying to be sent there... and. The most annoying part of it is I've already seen this reflected in some of my conservative friends on social media mm-hmm. where they're saying, well, if the president who is in his 70s and overweight, if he was able to beat the virus, well, then there was never any problem in the first place. Mm. Oh, great. Sample size of one <laughs> who is yeah. a non-representative sample. Who got the best 
possible quality health care. And also, yeah. we don't even know if he's necessarily out of the woods. That Yeah, that's the huge I was, thing. I was watching a video of him standing in front of the White House during that photo op, and he was very visibly having trouble breathing. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually, while I was watching it, I was actually feeling really bad for him. Yeah. Um, because he really looked like he was struggling. Um, now, in some of the other videos he's made, he's looked a little bit better, but again, that could be because he's taking steroids right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of makes you feel really good. <laughs> but but he's still basically latching onto that message. And that could not be more apparent than when he sent out a tweet, which when I saw this, I, I almost screamed. Mm-hmm. He said, quote, flu season is coming up. Many people every year, sometimes over 100,000, despite the vaccine, die from the flu. Are we going to close down our country? No, we have to learn to live with it. Just like we are learning to live with COVID in most populations, far less lethal. Yeah. He compared it to the flu. Again. 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 (laughs) Again. Yeah. So according to the CDC... The worst flu season that we have ever had was the 2017 to 2018 flu season, which killed an estimated 61,000 people. But remember, we've made this point before, the way that the mortality is estimated in flu seasons is a lot less official than the way we're dealing with the COVID numbers. So if COVID numbers were measured in the same way that they measure that they estimate how many people die of the flu specifically that year and every other year the number would be much higher than that but even then 61,000 is a lot less than 200,000 it is not the goddamn flu and the issue is we know that he knows this because he admitted it in a recording he admitted that he knows it's not the flu, that it's far more deadly than the flu. But somehow, he's gone back to that message. Mm -hmm. What the hell is going on? He has no empathy. He does not care about human life at this point. Like, I actually, you know, when I saw that he was diagnosed with COVID, there is a part of me that thought, wow, now that this is something affecting him, Mm -hmm. maybe he'll start taking it seriously. Maybe he'll start thinking, oh, well, this was a really scary experience for me. Um, Maybe I'm going to start, maybe I should start taking this more seriously. But no, of course not. He's going to get the best quality care that he can possibly get, brag about how he... Uh, how he defeated the disease, tell everybody that there's nothing to worry about. It doesn't matter how many people die because of it. It doesn't matter how many people get the disease because of it. It doesn't matter how many people get the disease specifically from him. Mm-hmm. It's all about, will this hurt my reelection? Will it not hurt my reelection? Will it make me feel good about myself because people like me? Or will it, you know, will it make me look like a, a, a weak leader? None of it has to do with any regard for human life. He has shown that repeatedly. And look, this is this is this is a passioned plea right now. This is you you are hearing anger in my voice, but this is based off of the evidence. This is based on the fact that we have recording of him saying that he knows it's not the flu and he's going back and comparing it to the flu even after two hundred thousand people have died. Yeah. 
And the thing is, the wanton disregard for life, beyond just the callousness of saying that a disease that has killed 216,000 people in a matter of months is no big deal and that you shouldn't be afraid of it, is that his administration is continuing to fail to take effective action, even on this very localized scale. According to White House press people, no one is wearing masks in the White House. They're, they're not taking precautions even after he was infected. And they are um, not allowing the CDC to come in and do contact tracing at this from this super spreader event, which is expect which is believed to be the source of all of these infections. And so they're like they're literally, in order to preserve the the message that this either isn't a big deal or it wasn't something that Trump is responsible for, they're literally gonna get more people infected as the people from that event continue to go throughout their daily life. Um, and interact with other people. Yeah. And there have been reports from inside the White House that apparently staffers that have contracted COVID have been encouraged to basically just keep it quiet. Mm -hmm. um, and the cherry on top of this sociopathic Sunday of a cartoonish villain is the fact that Trump announced yesterday that... There would be no new negotiations for a COVID relief bill until after the election. Yeah. So in case you still don't believe me that he doesn't care about human life, he has decided that the primary focus right now should be rushing through a stolen Supreme Court nomination yep. and not giving people the stimulus that they need. Yeah. And it's even... I think it's even more cartoonish than that. So, so this is this is what he came out and announced. "Quote: I have instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election. When immediately after I win, we'll pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hardworking Americans and small businesses." And he later told McConnell, "Quote: Not to delay, but instead focus full time on approving my outstanding nominee to the Supreme United States Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett." So he's saying two things there. One was the point you made, which is don't focus on helping people. Focus on making sure that we secure this Supreme Court seat. But the who second will thing— then take away the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, yeah, who, who, yeah, not only Affordable Care Act, but, you know, like so many of the rights that and protections that we've fought so hard for. I mean, potent, like Obergefell is in question. Um, the recent Supreme Court case that found that— you couldn't discriminate um, against LGBTQ people because to discriminate based on someone's sexual orientation, you have to consider their sex, which is like a bedrock component of, of our jurisprudence at this point. But anyway, but the, the, the more cartoonish thing to me is that he's not only saying we're not going to do this stimulus, he's saying elect me first. And then yeah. we'll do the stimulus. He's holding us hostage. Yeah, basically, basically holding, holding the people who need help hostage, saying, elect me or you won't see stimulus until January when Biden is, um, when Biden takes the presidency. Which is crazy because we're not nearly in the clear yet. And this goes against the recommendations from his own government. 
Like the Fed chair, Jeremy Powell, had advised that another sti economic stimulus was necessary. Um, and his favorite measure, the stock market, dropped right after he announced that, you know, there wouldn't be a stimulus. And the thing is, like, yes, our economy is doing better than it was doing um, at the height of the shutdown. Sure. Given that we're in the middle of a huge pandemic that leads directly to economic decline, we're doing surprisingly well. Considering the fact that unemployment peaked at 15% after seeing weeks of earth-shattering um, job loss, it's pretty impressive that we're at 7.9% unemployment, but we're still at 7.9% unemployment. And on top of that, the only reason that things aren't way, way worse, and the only reason the shutdown didn't lead our economy to cascade into an all-out long-term recession was precisely because of how fast and how large um, the economic stimulus was. The fact that we actually could agree that we needed to put something out there really, really quickly. Because the fact is that that was effective because even when people lost their jobs at you know hundreds of thousands of people a week, losing their jobs, if you made $50,000 or less, you were making about the same, if not more, on the stimulus, which allowed people to have enough money to actually cover their needs. But we are totally not out of the woods, and we're totally not back at full employment. And even if we were to get to a vaccine the fastest we've ever gotten to one, and even if we were to have you know, universal social distancing and mask wearing, we would still need economic stimulus in order to plug the whole of our economy until we get this disease fully under control. Because the fact is that you can't, you can't fix the economy fully until the coronavirus is under control. And so by definition, the stimulus is just a short-term fix. It's literally just a short-term infusing of cash into the economy to make sure people can still um, buy the things they need and fund their lives. It's by definition short term, um, but that's all we need it. We need it for five or six or eight more months until we have something that resembles reasonable levels of unemployment again. Because remember, like during the Great Recession, unemployment was at a similar level to where it is today. We're not doing great. The best that they gave us was $1,200, which took a while yeah it was an it was a one-time payment not everybody even got their check based on a variety of different circumstances mm -hmm. in fact most of the people that needed the check the most are the ones that got it the latest yeah there has been no negotiations at this point or at least no attempt at good faith negotiations to try to get people uh, another stimulus check mm -hmm. and look another point to be made is that you can make the argument that there are some things that Democrats put in the bill that Republicans were never going to pass. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they did put stimulus checks for undocumented immigrants. And whereas I, you know, because undocumented immigrants at this point, uh, and, you know, this is, this, this is a fact, you can, you can look this up, undocumented immigrants pay more taxes than what they take out of the economy. Mm -hmm. um, so therefore, I think that it's completely justified to, to talk about uh, including them in stimulus checks. But even in, even if you're going to say that that's a non-starter for Republicans, then 
that's where negotiation comes through. Yeah, comes in exactly. And Donald, Tr- what Donald Trump has basically done right here is he's put it completely on him. He has put it completely on him that not only is there not a proposal, not only is there a bad proposal, but he is specifically saying that there can't even be a negotiation. Yes. Yeah. In order to make a proposal. Yeah. To, he's instructed Steve Mnuchin to stop negotiating altogether. He's basically said, we're just not going to make any progress. That's crazy. Yeah. So just as a recap, so Trump got the coronavirus. He got some of the best health care in the world. He then proceeded to downplay the virus while also trying to paint himself as the strong man that defeated it. He then once again compared it to the flu, disregarding the fact that there are 200,000 people that have died of it so far, over 200,000. He has been putting more people at risk by taking rides in a limo with Secret Service agents that can be infected by it. He's been infecting plenty of people around around him in a White House where there is this, this culture of downplaying the virus and not taking precautions, which is leading more and more people in that circle to get infected. And instead of a case where he experienced it and he realized how bad it must be for everybody else and how terrible it must be for people that are not financially afloat, he has decided that we cannot negotiate to create another stimulus package to help the American people because he wants to push through a judge that will take away people's health care during a pandemic. Trump, he's a disgusting human being. He's a terrible person. He's a sociopath. He is soulless. He is heartless. And I wish him a speedy recovery. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments and a new segment to the show, Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Well, we do good actually because right now the world feels like a really terrible place. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the wise words of one of my best friends in a song that I heard last week, <laughs> we are so fucked. <laughs> um, but that being said, if you really look, if you really take a good hard look at the world, you realize that good actually is everywhere. You know, you can find it if you look hard enough. And we have a story that happened this week that just made me smile. Me Made me too. feel so good. Yeah. It, so so what, is, what is our good actually story this week? Well, for our good actually story this week, we have got to thank gay men. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> this spontaneous and incredibly uh, inspired and pithy campaign occurred over the weekend where the hashtag proud boys which is often associated with uh the white supremacist uh western chauvinist group the proud boys which um you know share messages of hate and intolerance and bigotry and and white supremacy um, so naturally, Trump told them to stand by last week during the debate. Yes. You, you never know when you're going to need all those things in your back pocket. Uh, <laughs> so the Proud Boys hashtag was um, flooded by 
posts from gay men celebrating gay pride and with yeah. the with the uh the hashtag proud boys which is just so awesome yeah, <laughs> yeah. like you know Whenever, whenever I hear Proud Boys now, I think of gay men celebrating pride, yes. and that just makes me happy yeah. because, you know, the Proud Boys are the, the the Proud Boys, the the white supremacist group, are just a group of insane, horribly racist jackasses, mm-hmm. and the fact that they're being shown up and drowned out, not even by like insults not even by being called out but just by love mm-hmm. you know that's that's just that's good I, you know yeah it's just good i agree and the pictures are so sweet they're like people celebrating yeah. and showing and sharing love and it's yeah. just so awesome and it is so nice that i'm sure the proud boys hate it <laughs> that that's just a cherry on top <laughs> i mean you know the best form of schadenfreude is taking pleasure at the pain of other people that take pain from the love of others. <laughs> I love so, it. So thank you so much to the real proud boys yes. for making our story of good actually this week. So for our next section, we wanted to have another segment on the injustice system, which is our series on problems in our criminal justice system. And we wanted to focus specifically on the topic of grand juries. And um, this piqued our interest because of some of the news coming out of the Breonna Taylor um, investigation. And so we wanted to first talk through some of those facts and then talk about um, the, the basics and kind of the structure of the grand jury process, grand jury indictments and investigations, and, and how those problems with kind of that structure can lead to these um, outcomes, especially in the cases of um, the killing of, of minorities, specifically black people, uh, by police. Yeah. So this story is so enraging Mm -hmm. on so many levels it was enraging when we first heard about it and because we live in america and we know how our criminal justice system loves to punish the innocent and protect the guilty um we knew this was going to get even worse and it really did take a turn for the worse when a grand jury had basically decided to only hand out one indictment during the brianna taylor case and it was not a murder charge it was a reckless endangerment charge and it was for one of the shots that missed yeah so as a reminder um this case is specifically occurred when um, brianna taylor was asleep in her home um with her boyfriend and there were a set of three police officers who were serving a no-knock warrant on her apartment um they banged on the door and depending on which party you believed may or may not have identified themselves as police. Um, her boyfriend, who was a lawful um, gun owner, announced that he would be defending himself, and when they barged in the door, um, he fired on the intruders, um, striking one of the police officers in the leg, at which time they opened fire on the apartment, killing Brianna Taylor with, I believe, eight shots. Um, 
and so that's kind of the backstory of this whole thing. The warrant was specifically for the pursuit of an individual who had already been taken into custody. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the, the background that gets us to this, to this questionable non-indictment by the grand jury. Yeah. This is another case of where the hell is the NRA? Oh yeah, I forgot they're racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause this is other than the fact that the, the victims involved in this are black. This is the perfect narrative for the NRA. This is the government going to somebody's house armed that person defending themselves and then one of them getting shot and, and dying. Mm -hmm. Like this is the government infringing on someone's right. And the fact of the matter is that the boyfriend in any other case, if, if it weren't for the fact that they were cops in any other case, this would be a clear cut case of self-defense. There are people in your house and they're armed. All right. Even in some of the most, liberal states even in states that don't have a castle clause that is self-defense but it's different because they are police officers mm -hmm. so what's annoying about this this process is that the facts seem to get really jumbled yeah so according to the police investigation there was one witness that had said that the police had actually announced that they were police officers before going in but apparently that that specific witness had a changed their story mm -hmm. so at first they had said no they didn't hear it and then later changed the story and said they that they that they did and then there were three other witnesses and this is according to recordings um during the sessions of the grand jury uh there were three other witnesses that said that they did not hear at any point the cops announcing that they were going to be um that they were going to be entering the house mm -hmm. and right now the the kentucky attorney general is actually facing allegations of basically choosing a prosecutor with the specific intent of that prosecutor not prosecuting. Mm -hmm. The specific intention of that prosecutor not doing their job. And again, making the argument that, oh, well, I mean, obviously the police officers just defended themselves. No. Yeah. Brown Taylor and her boyfriend defended themselves. Um, but the argument that is being made, and, you know, there are, um, there are, uh, various organizations, including the uh, including the attorney for for the Taylor family, that is basically saying that um, it was clear that there was never any intention of prosecution. So all of this is exacerbated by the structure of the grand jury system. Now, I will confess that the grand jury system is not something that I am hugely familiar with i've done some reading on it i have a general understanding of it but um i'm going to turn this over to michael so michael why was this allowed to happen and why does the grand jury structure enable this yeah uh, that's i mean it's a key question um because you would expect in the charging of a crime a um a level of like respect for the rule of law and justice and and as with many parts of our criminal justice system and political system a measure of um balance and um kind of structural checks and really that is not the case at all with a grand jury and so really what enabled this to happen is that when it comes to a grand jury almost all of the power and influence and control 
is held by one person, and that is the prosecutor. And so I'm going to spend some time walking through kind of what a grand jury is, what exactly they do, um, how they're structured, and then discuss uh, more about that problem that I just mentioned. So first off, what the heck is a grand jury and how is it different from a trial jury? So a grand jury, like a trial jury, is just a group of laymen, of lay citizens. Um, unlike a trial jury, it's made up of between 16 and 23 people. Um, and they actually, they, they sit as a jury for from up to a few months to up to a year, reviewing cases a few days a week. And so they review many, many cases, and their job is to determine whether formal charges should be brought against an individual. And there's, so their standard is probable cause, um, which means that they basically have to come to, to like a 51% chance that um, this particular person committed this particular crime. And, and from what I've read, it does not have to be unanimous, right? No, it does not. At least, uh, at least 12 jurors have to concur. Um, so supermajority, but not unanimous. Exactly. Supermajority if, if the total is 16. Simple majority if the total is 23. Okay. Um, but on finding, uh, yeah, so, so once they find that probable cause has been met, um, they then deliver uh, the formal charges. Um, and so those formal charges come in the form of an indictment, which is basically just the formal charging of a criminal, of, of a crime. Um, and so the jury is just selected from the same jury tool, pool that trial juries come from, and they can only be uh, excused for either cause or for logistical reasons. So cause in this case is basically claiming that they could not be impartial um, in their assessment of the facts. Um, now, we'll come back to that a little bit later, um, but also remember that it's, it's not like you get excused for the whole period of time. I, I believe you get excused on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. And basically only for things that are like a substantial uh, conflict of interest. Yeah, and the system uh, or the, uh, the process of jury selection is referred to as voir dire. Yeah, that's right. But that's mostly in the case of a trial jury. In this case, there's no real process of selection. They, um, they will go in front of a judge. He'll ask a couple of very basic questions. Um, and basically, as long as they're not a felon, um, they will be uh, included. There's no screening for bias. There's no, um, you know, there aren't two parties uh, who are selecting or questioning jurors extensively about you know, how they might or might not rule in a particular case. It is very much just a, a relatively random um, sampling with a little bit of bias based on who's actually in the jury pool. Um, and so the way that a jury comes up with their finding of probable cause for an indictment is through a grand jury investigation. Now, the grand jury investigation is presided over by the prosecutorial office, um, which in most cases is, is either a state attorney general or a district attorney or whatever level the court is. Um, and these investigations are, are um, conducted uh, ex parte, which basically means that there is no, um, there's no defendant present. 
although the defendant can be asked to provide uh, a statement. Um, but basically, the only people that are required to be there are a clerk, the jurors, and the prosecutor. And there is no defense presented at all. Um, there is no defendant, no defendant lawyer. There is no um, right to an attorney during a grand jury investigation. Uh, so basically, the whole point is for the prosecutor to provide the best possible case they can for why this particular person may have uh, committed this particular crime, and they just have to prove that case up to a 51% standard. Um, and what you may have gathered by now is that these uh, proceedings are entirely secret. All of the records are sealed. Um, there is There are recordings, but they are held under seal, and not even a judge is present. And so... These, so the only people that are present are potentially witnesses, and then the jurors, the clerk, and the prosecutor, all of whom are um, cloaked in secrecy. They're not allowed to share anything about the, um, the proceeding under a charge of contempt of court, and you know, which carries jail and fines and things like that. And so what they do is decide about indictments. Yes. So what's what's the difference between indictment and conviction? Yeah. So the difference between indictment and conviction is literally everything. <laughs> so an <laughs> indictment is just um, the charge of an of a alleged crime against an individual. So um, I'm sure you've seen it in the movies. They'll go and they'll pick somebody up and say, "Hey, you've been charged with the crime of X," and you know, you have the right to an attorney and blah, blah, blah. Basically, it is the initial stage after uh, an initial investigation has taken place and a grand jury proceeding has occurred when you are formally charged with a crime. Proceeding after that is a formal trial. You have your right to an attorney. Um, you have uh, the, jur the jury is much smaller, um, usually between six and 12 people. They uh, are selected um, by a relatively competitive process that you mentioned called called voir dire. Um, it's presided over by a judge, and the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. So like a 99% sure that this particular person committed this particular crime. Very importantly also with, with the jury is the process of instruction. So in a, tr in a criminal trial, um, when the jury is responsible for finding fact, basically that this thing occurred and this person did it, they are instructed about what law applies and how it applies. And, and basically told, you know, if you find that X factor is true, then this person has committed this crime. And um, all they have to do is basically find, you know, a decision of fact, and then that person is convicted of a crime. For Unless, of course, they exercise jury nullification. Yes, which is basically the process of saying uh, we're not going to recognize this blatant fact as fact and not going to deliver a conviction even though yeah. it's clear that they should be. But we don't have to get into that here. The, the important thing I wanted to, to emphasize was the instruction portion. So during a trial, the judge um, instructs the jury about, about all the applicable laws and how they are applied and what exactly they mean. During a grand jury... There's actually, depending on the state, no requirement that that instruction occur. So again, you may have picked up on this theme. It is up to the prosecutor 
what information, even about the applicable law, is shared with the grand jury. And so the fact that these are lay people, not lawyers, um, who are making this finding and that the prosecutor has control not only over the facts presented, but also over the um, information shared about the law that might be applicable, gives the prosecutor a tremendous amount of power in controlling the outcomes. Um, and so this can be problematic in kind of two ways. One, the prosecutor can almost definitely get an indictment anytime they want one. And two, the prosecutor can almost definitely not get an indictment anytime they don't want one. <laughs> and um, and again, they're, the prosecutor is not required to provide any defending evidence. So if you have someone with like a great alibi, um, they don't have to provide that information to the jury, and the jury can deliver an indictment anyway. Um, and as with with this case, um, the prosecutor, you know, may or may not zealously pursue an indictment. Now, now it is telling that the prosecutor has the choice of whether to bring uh, a potential crime in front of the grand jury at all. So the fact that they brought, um, you know, this case before a grand jury means that they either wanted to show that they were doing that or that they had real questions about whether these people should be indicted. Um, but ultimately, because of the amount of control a prosecutor has and because of um, the fact that it's all secret, there's really no internal or external checks and balances or control over the situation. The prosecutor is pretty much able to do whatever they want. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting that a court has ordered that, you know, the recordings of the um, grand jury process be released um, but that, you know, that's one case and it's a pretty rare thing. I think the prosecutor in this case and the state attorney general were really surprised, um, that that happened. Let me, let me see if I'm, you know, understanding what, what you're saying. So the grand jury decides what the, um, like whether or not there should be charges brought up. So that means that the, uh, the grand jury would then decide whether it should move on to a trial jury, mm -hmm. uh, which would then mean that basically the prosecutor can almost use the grand jury as like a, a test run, basically, right? Yeah, but like the easiest test run in history. Imagine like a practice test where you're literally looking at the answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so basically, uh, if you use a grand jury and indictment charges are not brought up in the first place, then that basically gives the prosecutor an excuse to not bring up charges if they don't want to, right? Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Now, in cases, in really high-profile cases, especially because there's no screening process, you could have um, the jury have a really made-up opinion about the case already, and so they may not listen to, you know, the, the input of the prosecutor. Um, and so to the extent that you have a jury that is not representative of the community, um, you might have, you know, a jury that is biased towards a particular outcome, especially in cases similar to this one. Also, something we probably want to bring up is that attorney general and, and district attorney are elected positions, which means that this whole um, grand jury process is uh, pretty susceptible 
to like the kind of machinations of the political process, which we normally think of as, as separate from our criminal justice system. And so you've probably heard about grand juries in relationship to police killings often. Grand juries failed to return indictments in the Michael Brown case, in the case of Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, and many others. And now in the case of Breonna Taylor, um, they are delivering no indictments actually related to her killing at all. Not even, you know, manslaughter or, or anything related to her particular killing. They're only, they only delivered this indictment of wanton endangerment to this one police officer. Who missed a shot. Who missed a shot. And, and, it's, and if you think that may be the slightest titillating taste of justice, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, because uh, one endangerment in Kentucky is a Class D felony, which is the lowest level of felony in Kentucky law. There is no minimum pel- penalty and a maximum penalty of one to five years. And people often receive probation for this level of pel- penalty. Other Class D uh, felonies are things like shoplifting, possession of marijuana in a school zone, things like that. Um, And in a Kentucky law that was passed in 2016, um, you can petition to have this particular felony expunged from your record, in which case it would be totally removed, and basically you return to non-felony status. So even if this police officer was convicted, which again, we're not, we're not anywhere close to that yet, but even if he were convicted of this crime, he could serve probation and have it expunged from his record, and there would be literally no impact on his life. And that's for the one bullet that didn't hit the black woman. Yeah. That's, that is a complete miscarriage of justice. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And in case you're wondering about the role of the prosecutor in all this, he has come out and said that he did not instruct the jury to consider homicide charges in this case at all. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments and one that we so rarely get to do, but we're excited when it comes along, our D-Bag Award. D-Bag, of course, stands for Dershowitz Bag, and this award is named in honor of one of the stupidest arguments that has ever been made, which, of course, was the argument where where he stood in front of the House of Representatives and made the argument that it was okay for Donald Trump to solicit help from a foreign government to cheat in, ele- in an election because Trump believed that it was in the country's best interest that he win the presidency. <laughs> God, that argument still makes me laugh. And break a little bit inside. <laughs> every time, every time. So, so we have two contestants. We're we're calling this new segment uh, "Dueling D Bags." <laughs> so, in the past, we have when we have handed out Dershowitz awards, Dershowitz bag awards, uh, we have provided multiple different possibilities and then let the community choose them. Uh, we are now going to officially name that "Dueling D Bags." Uh, so, we have two lucky contestants for today um so you as the community get to reach out to us and tell us uh who you think should be the honorary winner of our d-bag award so michael who is our first contestant first off we have former uh republican uh 
representative and uh, former, um, uh, I think he ran for president, but got beaten out by yep. Romney in the in the primary, Mr. Rick Santorum. Yep. And uh, he came out with a really hot take following the, the uh, disaster of a debate that we had. Um, and he basically said that Chris Wallace was unfair when he challenged Trump to condemn white supremacy because they're his base. And it would be rude to ask someone to condemn people that support them. So he said, yeah. quote, the Democrats owe a lot to Chris Wallace. He asked two questions where he was asking the president to do something he knows the president doesn't like to do, which is, to, which is say something bad about people who support him, right? Talking about the white supremacists, number one. <laughs> so, yeah, you shouldn't condemn evil things when the evil things benefit you. <laughs> yeah. So, so the the funniest part of this is I made that exact same argument last week on the pod. Mm -hmm. I made the exact same argument that of course Donald Trump wasn't going to condemn white supremacists because they support him. Yeah. Again, maybe maybe you could argue that Trump is not a white supremacist, you know, I don't know. Maybe you could make that argument, but you cannot deny the fact that white supremacists support Donald Trump and Donald Trump does not like to speak bad badly against people that support him. And by the way, when I said that, when I talked about how white supremacists support Trump and when I talked about how Trump doesn't want to condemn white supremacists because he thinks them making him feel better is better than, you know, him condemning racism. When I made that argument, um, that that was a, that was a criticism. <laughs> you had no idea that you were feeding the the arguments of the opposition. Yeah. The defense. <laughs> How can Rick you Santorum ask someone, this as a defense? How can you ask the leader of a nation to condemn people who support him? Oh, just <laughs> hilarious. Oh. oh my God, Rick said this. This guy, he's a he's a CNN commentator. Yeah, like he's a he's a CNN he's a CNN contributor. This is his hot take. Mm. Like this guy, he you know he was in Congress. He uh, ran for office in 2012, and he actually uh, he ran again in 2016, uh, and then got beaten out by Donald Trump. Um, and he's like, man, I wish I'd thought of the supremacist vote. And the funniest part is that this isn't even the most offensive thing that you find when you Google his name. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's I a will sad leave part, that. Yeah. I will leave that to my audience to Google Santorum. Ugh, gross. <laughs> so Nathan, who is our other contestant? Our other contestant, our other lucky contestant, is Justice Clarence Thomas from the Supreme Court. Man, I'm surprised that he hasn't made it onto the Dershowitz list before. Yeah, or the Ass Hat Award. Yeah, fair well, enough. well, he he is known for not talking. <laughs> like he he is known for being pretty quiet on the on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and and not talking a lot. So you know, it. it I mean, it, it's understandable in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, but if you'll recall, there was a Supreme Court decision in 2015. It was called uh, a Burgerfell versus Hodges. And this was the Supreme Court case that legalized marriage equality throughout the entire United States. And the argument was basically that uh, the 14th Amendment provides equal protection under the law for everybody. And, and not just that, but that applies to the states. So states cannot make laws that violate equal protection. And it is established precedent at this point in the court that that also involves 
gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. And naturally, in order to discriminate against someone's sexual orientation, you have to take sex and gender into account. Mm -hmm. Because if a, uh, if a man is, marrying, is being married to a man and you're saying that's illegal, you are taking their sex into account. So, again, very clear-cut case. Um, that was the argument that ended up winning the day. Uh, Clarence Thomas, however, had a different argument back then, which uh, he, he basically made the argument that it was a violation of religious liberty, the First Amendment, to say that marriage equality would be legalized in the United States because there are people who disagree with marriage equality based on religious regions. That's not what the in, First Amendment means. <laughs> in in the words, uh, you know, he's he's using religious liberty against this. In, in the words of Inigo Montoyo, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> so so apparently, it's it's not religious freedom to say that anybody, regardless of uh, that anybody, is free to practice their own religion, uh, their own religious ceremonies for marriage whether it is they, their specific religion believes in same-sex marriage or does not, but it is against religious freedom to say that you have, to, I guess you have to live in a country in which other people are allowed to have different beliefs. Like what? Not just have different <laughs> so, beliefs, Nathan, act on those beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and this is he a recently, Supreme court justice yeah. on the Supreme so he court. Recently, yeah, so he recently reminded us of that terrible argument that he made five years ago in a Supreme Court case that had just that um, had just been rejected, uh, where he wrote by choosing to endorse quote a novel constitutional right over the religious liberty interests explicitly protected in the First Amendment, and by doing so undemocratically, the court created a problem only it can fix. Until then, a burger fell will continue to have ruinous consequences for religious liberty. <laughs> that is such a stupid argument. And, and, and you know, if you, if you famously penned a decision that is going to be remembered as one of the stupidest judicial arguments in American history, maybe don't remind everybody <laughs> about it. Maybe don't remind everybody how stupid you are five years later. And the most ironic part of this is that he is a black man who is married to a white woman. And you know why that's not illegal? It was because of a Supreme Court case, Loving versus the state of Virginia, that said that states were not allowed to, uh, to discriminate against couples, to say that uh, interracial couples were not allowed to get married. Mm -hmm. And then he's turning around and discriminating against uh, same-sex couples. When he he was on he would have been on the other side of that about you know b before Loving versus State of Virginia. Yep, it's true. That's the most. That's the saddest part. Yep. So if you think Rick Santorum deserves it for arguing that we shouldn't uh, reject white supremacy as long as it benefits us. Or if you think that uh, Justice Thomas should uh, be our D-bag uh, for arguing that it is a violation of religious freedom to require people to live in the same country as people who have, uh, who are gay, 
um, then uh, <laughs> let us know. We'd love to hear what you think. We're, we're going back and forth over it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's D-Bag Awards. So for our final segment, we wanted to spend some time talking about the classroom, specifically the role of teachers in the classroom and the role of their political beliefs in the classroom. And, and I want to focus more on colleges. I mean, we, we, I think it, it is important to take a second and talk about like high school and middle school and even elementary school as well. But I do want to specifically talk about, uh, about college. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I want to specifically talk about college is because I myself am a college professor. Uh, I, I teach uh, public speaking on a college level um, and communication studies. And one of the things that I do in my classes is I very carefully, very specifically, do not tell my students my political beliefs until the last day of school. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I tell my students um, that they can ask me whatever political questions they want on the last day of school. And the re but, but I would like to say that the reason that I do that is not because I think that teachers should not talk about their political beliefs. I, I think, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that, that's not why I do that. The reason why I personally do that is because I teach public speaking and people choose their own speech topics. And I don't want people to choose a topic that they think I want to hear. Mm -hmm. I want them to choose the topics that they're passionate about. So I really do view education as the teacher teaching their students how to think, but not what to think. So how to think for yourself, how to, how to research properly, how to think about things intellectually, how to think about things honestly, um, how to think about things dialogically, uh, and how to have conversations in a way that moves the needle towards truth, that moves the needle towards wanting to find truth and being curious about the truth. Yeah. So, so the reason why I'm, I wanted to talk about this now is because I've been seeing this meme circulating Facebook recently that has basically said that if students know the political beliefs of their teacher, then it is a terrible teacher. So what are your thoughts on that, Michael? Well, I think my thoughts on that are that it's total garbage. It's, it's a yeah. I mean, it's a classic example of like, let's take a, an interesting and complex and potentially nuanced topic and boil it down into, you know, 80 characters or less. And, you know, just so we get a few shares and, and a lot of echoing in yeah. our little bit little echo chambers. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I think that um, except in cases where I, I think like your case is actually a good exception that proves the rule because it is a specific case where the sharing of your political beliefs would undermine your more important function as a teacher in that context. You would be... Yeah. Um, you would be enabling your students to take advantage of your potential biases um, in order to try to get a better grade in the best case. In the worst case, you would just be having students that would be trying to pander to you the whole time and not doing honest yeah. intellectual work. Yeah. And, and, you know, real quick, I do want to say that, you know, I, I do have a lot of fellow communication colleagues that, that don't necessarily hide their political views. And I, and I don't want to... Um, I don't want to 
come across as holier than thou. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's terrible that they don't hide it. I'm not trying to say that they should be ashamed of that. I'm not even necessarily saying that my practice is necessarily the right way of doing it. I think that there is an argument to be made that it's okay for teachers to be open about that, even in public speaking. But for me, you know, I do have concerns about what Michael had pointed out, which is I don't want it to influence the topics they select. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think like ultimately the, the function of a teacher and a professor is to profess, to teach the topic that they yeah. are tasked with imparting knowledge and skill about. And so to the extent that sharing your political beliefs would undermine that, I don't think they should necessarily do it. But I think more often than not, um, your professor sharing their political beliefs in an honest and direct way um, is probably going to be more helpful than not, right? Like you are, you are. First of all, it's encouraging honest and direct communication. Um, yeah, you know, between a, a, a professor and their students, which um, sets a tone of directness and honesty and clarity among like the whole conversation but also i think that it's actually great for a uh, professor to teach you the things that they think are true right like that's kind of what they're there for they're there to be uh, an expert on their topic they're there to be to speak about something and to the extent that they believe something to be true they should present you with the reasons behind it and if they don't if they just if they present you with some kind of um, dogmatic argument, you should, you know, challenge them as a thinker. Like they're not being true to the intellectual pursuit and the share of knowledge, sharing of knowledge. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot there, but ultimately yeah. I can't imagine that it is particularly harmful and it's not like you should be coddling people in general when they're out in the world, they're going to have to engage with people of similar and other beliefs and learn how to yeah. deal with them, would deal with them, you know, in a productive well, way. Well, this is another thing that I look at that I think is kind of funny that I, I'm seeing a lot of conservatives making this argument because <laughs> the conservative argument always seems to be, oh, my God, these speakers on college campuses are having their free speech violated. Wait a minute. You're telling me a teacher talked about their political views in the classroom? <laughs> oh, my God. What a terrible teacher. Fire them. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the reason you probably see that is because there's a general consensus that especially on college campuses, professors tend to be more liberal. And so what they're, what they're rejecting is the liberalness, not necessarily yeah. the actual activity. <laughs> Which I would just like to point out that one of my favorite professors that I ever had was, was a, one of my political science professors, and he was a Republican. Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody knew he was a Republican. He was actually uh, a former delegate to the Virginia General Assembly. Mm -hmm. Um, and he provided such interesting perspective. Yeah. And, and his political background, even, you know, even as a Republican, someone that, you know, I had a lot of political disagreements with, his political background was essential to the knowledge that he provided mm -hmm. because he was right there. He was there making the legislation happen. The specific class was about state and local elections and parties. And... You know, I, I just think that as a blanket rule, just saying they shouldn't, that teachers shouldn't share their political beliefs, even as a, a teacher that hides their political beliefs, mm -hmm. or at least doesn't explicitly talk about them uh, in class, 
I think that that's harmful. And ultimately, I think that college really should be about students becoming more of a part of a conversation. So I, I don't see college as just a transfer of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think that students have to be involved in the generation of knowledge. And to that end, I think that students feeling like they can challenge their professors is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So, but in order to do that, there has to be something to challenge. Yeah. So I love it when there are instances in which I make an academic point and a student challenges me. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, one of the things that I like to try to do is, you know, a student will express an opinion in my class and I'll challenge them. Even if it's an opinion I agree with, yeah. I'll challenge them. Yeah. Because I want them to learn how to defend it, even if they ultimately agree with me or even if they ultimately disagree sure. with me. Sure, you might accidentally change I'm... their mind to disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that, and you know what? That's fine. Because one of, one of the best points of view that I, I heard on this was actually uh, a, a communications civic engagement teacher that I had a while back. Um, and the point that he made, like he, he was... You know, he was pretty liberal and he did not hide the fact, but there were a lot of Republicans in the class. Mm -hmm. And at no point did he try to, like, you know, chastise them. Did he try to make them feel bad for themselves? At no point did he try to spe specifically push one ideology. But what his whole approach was, was basically, I believe that I'm right. I believe yeah. that I came to my conclusions based on accurate information. So... I want to make sure that people know how to find accurate information. And the way I see it, if people understand how to look, um, look up accurate information, understand how to think for themselves, if they're doing it honestly, they'll come to the same conclusion as me. Mm -hmm. But they have to come to it themselves. Sure. And if you know that they're doing it honestly and they don't come to the same conclusion as you, that is a very interesting case where there's a yeah. lot there's a lot that can be gained from exactly that scenario. Yeah, yeah maybe you maybe that means that you can you need to reevaluate yeah. some of your some of your opinions. Absolutely. And and I think I think there's always the worry of professors doing this badly. And I yeah. think that's, And it does happen. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw it regularly very not not often in political science sociology anthropology type courses but more often in non humanities related courses where you know people actually don't know how to do these things as well so like in my business yeah. school courses if someone you know had if like conflicting political views came up that professor might get flustered and lash out or something like that that is obviously yeah. a bad case and a bad outcome that is the professor not being true to the pursuit of knowledge in in all spheres right like yeah. that is the professor um neither saying well actually this is my area of expertise i might not know maybe this is a conversation to be had elsewhere so they're neither saying that nor are they saying uh, nor are they truly engaging with the topic in good faith, but rather using their place of authority to shut down conversation, which is, of course, the outcome that we want to avoid. But to Nathan's point, I think that the solution to that is to, um, you know, push for professors to be better, to have students that, um, you know, try to make sure that their professors are engaging with them honestly, 
um, and for professors to hold themselves accountable to that standard as well, rather yeah. than trying to put a moratorium on uh, political speech in the classroom, because ultimately yeah. that's going to lead to shutting down conversations that during college are vital to be had. Like my yeah. my perspective, which began my political perspective, my personal perspective, which began to shift um, before entering college, but like really gained momentum in changing throughout my first and second uh, and, and my third year of college, it would not have happened had political conversation not been something that everyone was freely and honestly engaging in. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny because... Um because one time I texted you and you were a libertarian, and then the next time I texted you, suddenly you're a liberal. I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> it, it wasn't that subtle. <laughs> it definitely it, it did it did honestly take years, which is yeah. you know, yeah. I I like talking about that experience. Maybe we can talk about it someday on the pod. But um, yeah, yeah, no, I I I definitely be interested to learn sort of more. About, like we've had some conversations about mm -hmm. it, um, but I'd definitely be interested in kind of breaking that down a little bit more because yeah. I'm. Because, you know, I, for me, I do try to maintain an open mind as much as possible. Mm. Um, but I have most of the same political beliefs sure. that I've had most of my life. I think that, you know, uh, there's like maybe one or two that I've changed a little bit on. Mm. Um, there's a few in which I've become a little bit like more intense on. Sure. Um, but for the most part, I, you know, I was I was raised by. Uh, liberals mm -hmm. and I am a liberal um, so I like the upending of an entire political philosophy to me is 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 an interesting concept yeah. Um, yeah and I went from a belief in pure free market economy basically police and fire are the only thing that we can really justify funding with government from like that laissez-faire perspective um, to the person that you hear on the podcast today, um, yeah. just a total perspective shift in a lot of ways um, in a matter of a few years, largely precipitated by college and the time that I spent having these great conversations with professors interested in the pursuit of truth. Which I think that's another really important point because... Like even even when there are cases in which a student in my class expresses something that is kind of a really out there political belief or sort of a uh, in some ways an attack mm -hmm. on on a on a group, um, you know, on one hand, I do want to make sure that everybody that the other students feel safe in the class, yeah. but on the other hand, I do want to approach it in more of a you know questionary sense. Mm -hmm. Like I want to approach it with, all right, let's let's interrogate that a bit. Why do you believe that? Oh, so, oh, it's because you had an experience with a person um, of that identity. Huh. Interesting. So, let's talk about that experience. All right. So it was just with one person of that identity. So wouldn't you say that it might be unfair to classify that person with all other members of their same identity? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, that that does seem unfair. So so again, it's it's about like the thing that I try to encourage other teachers to do, and the thing that I try to approach myself is always approach approach it with curiosity. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. 
try to approach questioning and discussions with students with curiosity. And, and also, I think it's good to, uh, I think it's a good thing to also try to interrogate the beliefs of students that you agree with as well. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you end up changing their mind, you, you need like to believe the opposite of what you, you think is correct. Um, you want them to approach it honestly. You want them to find the truth honestly. Because the fact of the matter is nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. Nobody's got it all. Yep. All right? So I think that part of that is, part, part of the importance of that is teachers do need to be able to approach those conversations honestly on their own part as well. Mm -hmm. So... So I, I think that it's it's really stupid to make these blanket statements about, you know, if a teacher, if you know your teacher's political beliefs, they're a failure. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. And anybody that anybody that says that is trying to oversimplify a complex issue and prevent themselves from thinking. And you know what? That person should take my class. Now that we are wrapping up our episode, we will end on a high note. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that we are still well on our way to closing in on a house. Just today, the appraiser went to the property and hopefully the appraisal report will be coming back to us soon. And when that report comes back to us, Jess and I can uh, go into the house and start renovating. Uh, so I am very excited about that. I'm very excited to get this show on the road to finally have our own place. Uh, we don't have it yet, but there's important steps that have been taken this week. Awesome. That's great. For me, my highlight is that I got to see uh, two of my adorable nieces um, on Monday. We had dinner and got to see them a bit, and it had been way too long, and Oh, it was just so refreshing to be able to to see them. I love them so much. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.